Well, most uh, nights at our house, we try to have dinner together as a family. We have, we have four sons. The oldest is seven. And a lot of our dinner times start with arguments. And the argument is about who is going to pray. And it's between my three oldest sons. And different ones have kind of held the title of the first prayer uh, at dinner at night. And they've had different kind of prayer styles, you know, each time. And so our oldest, Jude, uh, who's with us today, he would, he would always pray. My, my, I should say my grandmother, who, who they loved and who loved them back, she died a few years ago. They're Meemaw. And uh, they had, they're always thinking of Meemaw, especially at prayer time. And so uh, Jude would pray this sweet prayer. He would, he would pray that Meemaw in heaven would have this beautiful, what he called a bird's blessing song. And we just thought that was so sweet. We loved that. And it just it warmed my heart uh, to hear that prayer. And uh, then Clive, his, his younger brother, started to take over. And he would pray uh, different things, uh, you know, about Mima. Mainly that Mima was having a good time in heaven. That was what was a big priority for him. He wanted Mima to be having a good time and every night. It was God, please let Mima be having a good time in heaven. And I was like, I think that's theologically sound. That's probably fine. We don't need to correct this. Um, but then one night he prayed something a little bit different. He just added two words at the end, that, and they, those two words made a big difference, especially for me. He was praying and said, God, please let me all be having a good time in heaven with dad. And I, and I was like, sort of like half a second, I was like, oh boy, you know, and, and if you've seen like Sixth Sense, I was like, am I dead? Is this, uh, you know, like I thought they couldn't hear me over the TV earlier. Maybe it's because I'm not here. Can everyone see me? And uh, I finally figured out what had happened. So there's, a, there's some backstory here. We had gotten a bunch of chickens. We had we'd gotten six chickens from Rural King. And we thought, this will help us, you know, we'll have chickens. That's what we need. We got all these kids, we should get chickens too. So we got chickens and we brought them home. And chick, chickens are not very hardy animals, especially baby chicks. And sometimes they just die. That is no good reason. They just die. So we brought these chicks home. We're so excited. And then tragedy struck. The next day, one of the chicks had died. And so we, we were grieved as a family. We buried it in the backyard. We probably had to go out for Chick-fil-A afterwards just to calm us down. And so we, we buried it. And we moved on, you know, we were like, this is all right, it's done, the chicken has been buried, and uh, we, we moved on. But it, was, it seemed to me like it was several months later that this all happened. Uh, I must have been at work or something, and I don't know if the boys just were, got together, and they decided that they needed to posthumously, after the chicken's death, name it. And they named it, of all names, Dad. And so... That cleared things up for me once I pieced that together. Uh, but it turns out, after all, I was not dead. Um, but I'm also not getting any, any younger. I, I recognize this. Uh, this past I teach at UK, and uh, this past week I was in my classes, and I said, I started this example, and I said, now you guys are probably too young to remember this. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, oh my goodness, that's something old people say. Like I've heard, <laughs> I've heard old people say this my whole life. And I'm going to be saying this for the rest of my life, you know, uh, I'm, I'm getting older. Uh, and I do, and on a serious note, I do, I have recently thought uh, about death. You know, there's been a few times in my life I've thought about death, like a handful of instances on like a back of a four-wheeler in my teenage years. But a few weeks ago, I got these blood tests back, okay? And I, I was, you know, we always hear like sermon illustrations about the, the test results and and I was looking at my test results, and I was like, this seems like it's not. Some of the numbers are down. They're outside the range. And I was like, that's not what I expected to happen. But I was hoping the doctor would reassure me. Like, oh, you're a strapping young man. Don't worry about that. You know, see you in five years, kid. And instead, he, he emailed me, and he said, we need to do these again in two weeks to, quote, see what's going on. And I was like, I don't like the sound of that at all. Uh, so we, you know, in that two-week period, I should have been praying a lot. Instead, I was, I was doing a lot of Googling. 
And Laura was in my office at one point. I was stressed and I was, you know, showing her. I was like, okay, so this stuff, you know, here's some good information. And then I looked at, I clicked this Google result and I looked at the header and it was a cancer website. I was like, oh no, like that's not what I wanted to happen. Uh, But I got more blood tests, uh, you know, back and and I'm feeling better. But in that interim period, you know, I was, I was concerned, you know, I was thinking serious, grave thoughts. I was thinking about my sons. I was like, what if, what if my sons grew up without a dad? I've heard my own dad talk about that. I didn't want that for them. I thought about Laura. I thought she'd be really sad. She'd also be rich, you know, from the life insurance. <laughs> and then I was, uh, that, you know, you're supposed to pet a cat to calm down. I was petting my cat, and I was thinking, I was thinking, like, this cat's going to outlive me by 15 years. <laughs> and it's going to be in my house, rent-free. It's going to see all my kids graduate, and I'm going to be dead. But again, I got, some, I got some test results back, and I'm not going to die, and I'm not, at least not right, right now, but there's a really good chance eventually that I will. And there's a really good chance, if the Lord tarries, that all of you all will too. And that's a really big question. How do we reckon with that? How do we reckon with our own mortality? And if you've ever thought about your death seriously, you know it's, it is serious. It is a serious thing to consider. And then when you, when you do that, when you think about death and dying, where do you turn? You turn to Facebook? I hope not. You turn to your doctor, you know, doc, we gotta get this under control, you know, give me some more pills, give me some more surgery. Those are good things to do. It's not gonna be the ultimate cure. Turn to your CrossFit coach or your personal trainer. Hey, I gotta get more cardio in, something, right? Help me squeeze a little bit more life uh, out of my time on earth. Maybe, maybe we turn to Disney, to Coco, right? We all watched Coco, you all cried. And uh, we think, well, maybe, maybe I'll die. Sure, yeah, 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 but it can be, it doesn't have to be bad. I can be remembered after all, right? But don't, don't play that out too far. Right? Who's gonna remember you? And for how long? What are they gonna remember? I mean, what do you know about your great-grandparents? Like, not enough stuff to fill a tweet, probably. And then you start to get even more depressed. Well, now I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna be forgotten by my own blood relatives. So having exhausted all other places to look, including Coco, let's turn to our text in John chapter 11. Let's turn to Jesus and see how he deals with the question of death. And in John 11, we find the story of what has to be the world's wildest funeral of all time. And if you're used to reading the New Testament or the Gospels, you'll, you'll get a sense that things really slow down here. I, I picked this passage and I thought, I forgot how long it was. It is a really long passage talking about a relatively short period of time. You don't really see that a lot in the New Testament. And what that tells us is that this is massively important, that people who are experiencing this are remembering all these little details of some of those moments in their lives that they'll never forget. This is Jesus reshaping the entire Jewish religion. It would never be the same after this. It would be Christianity. In John's gospel, right, Jesus had been slowly ramping up what he says about himself in John's gospel, interestingly, you have what scholars call the I am statement. So I am the good shepherd, I am the door. Here you have maybe the most provocative one of all. In this passage, you'll see Jesus say to everyone standing around, I am the resurrection and the life. That's a big, big statement. But he wasn't just talking, he was backing it up with what he did. And you think about Jesus' miracles, how they've been kind of ramping up. His first recorded miracle was turning water into wine and probably made him a lot of friends. You know, people loved that one, maybe a little bit too much. But here, right, this miracle is gonna make him some friends, make him some stronger friends, but it's also going to make him a lot of mortal, deadly enemies. But it starts off really mundane. 
Starts off kind of like every Southern Baptist Bible study, right? Prayer request. Somebody's sick. Somebody needs help. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they send word to Jesus. He's, he's a long way away, so they send word. Lazarus is sick. He needs help. And upon hearing this, Jesus makes a couple of promises in verse 4. He says, this is all going to be for the glory of God. And don't worry, nobody is ultimately going to die from Lazarus's sickness. And if you know the story, you're thinking, well, that's an interesting way to put it. And then Jesus does the most important, bold, sacrificial, and loving thing he could possibly do. Nothing. He waits. He does nothing out of love. That's the reason. The text says in verses 5 and 6 that he loves this family so much, these siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He loves them so much that he decides to wait two days before he goes to him. And it seems like nothing, right? I was kind of being silly, but it's not exactly nothing. It's different than that. Um, in, in better times, UK's had a really amazing basketball team. Right now, we would be you know, just waiting for that championship game. And if you watched basketball, I didn't really play a lot of basketball, but I, I kind of have understood how it works over the years. And there's these great moments towards the ends of these nail-biter games, right? And maybe that's UK, we're down by one. And uh, we got a great guard, maybe like Tyler Eulis or somebody. He's, we got 10 seconds left on the clock. We're down by one. And what is he doing? Is he in a hurry? Not seemingly, right? Sometimes that dribbling down the court is pretty slow. And then he's out at the top of the, you know, the three-point line, and he's just kind of dribbling, dribbling. It seems like nothing is happening, right? But that's all very intentional. That's all on purpose. With every dribble and every tick down of the clock, he is sealing the fate of the game one way or another, right? It seems like inaction, right? But the more time that goes by, the risk goes up, the glory goes up too. He's setting up for that last second buzzer beater that everyone will remember for the rest of their lives. You see, Jesus knew his disciples very well. And he knew Mary and Martha very well. And I think he knew that they believed that death was stronger than he was. And a mere kind of resuscitation or a mere like prevention of death, that wasn't going to change their mind. After all, Jesus had already done that, right? He raised up Jairus' daughter. Some of you all do that, in fact. Last week after church, I was talking to, uh, to Aaron King. He's a, he's a paramedic. And I said, hey, man, you know, I was checking in. Like, how are you doing? How was your week? And he's like, oh, it, it was good. Somebody died. And I was like, that's not what I thought you were going to say after your week was good. But he, he went on. He's like, somebody died this week, but we got to him pretty fast. And so we're like working on him, working on him. And then like 15 minutes later, they were like, wah! And apparently that's what people do when they come back to life, you know, which I didn't know that. And uh, I was like, wow, that's cool. I put some GIFs in my PowerPoint. Um, so we both had big weeks, it sounds like. But it raises this question, like, what is death even? What, is that, what does death even mean? Is it, is it when you stop breathing? Is it when, you know, your heart stops? Is it when there's this cessation of brain activity? I mean, you think about a recently dead person, they look and they feel and they smell like a fully alive one. And I think Jesus knew. In fact, he called people out sometimes for this. His followers had little faith. And if you want to give them hope, against the darkest reality of the universe in death, you have to do something that is astonishingly supernatural. And that's what Jesus was setting out to do. So for the good of Lazarus and for his sisters, Mary and Martha, and the good of his disciples and the Jewish onlookers, and for you in your chair or at home today, 
And for the glory of God, here's what Jesus did. He knew Lazarus was going to die. He lets him die on purpose. He lets him get dead, dead, decomposed, bloated, and reeking. Jesus loved Lazarus and his disciples and you in this room so much that he let his own dear friend Lazarus die and rot in a tomb. But he doesn't call it death. Interestingly, weirdly, he tells his disciples that this is just sleeping. In verse 11, he says, Lazarus is asleep and he's going to wake him up. And the New Testament, it's, it's humorous in these kind of moments. Jesus speaks kind of cryptically at times. His disciples don't always know what's going on. This kind of stuff is being unfolded before their eyes. They're kind of figuring it out as they go. And Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep, and then we gotta go wake him up. And they don't wanna go back because they're likely uh, to get uh, in trouble or killed in this area. And they say, uh, Jesus, uh, if he's asleep, he'll just kind of wake up naturally. And they don't get it. And so Jesus says to them in verses 14 and 15, finally, plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And raises this question, why would Jesus speak so cryptically about death? Why not just call it death all the time, every time? Why call it sleep? And it seems that Jesus is hinting constantly that we have death wrong that we don't understand it properly, and perhaps we don't even talk about it properly. He keeps saying the weirdest stuff over and over again in the Gospel of John. John chapter five, verses 20, uh, verse 24, whoever believes his word has passed from death to life. John eight fifty one. if anyone keeps his word, he will never see death. And your favorite verse, you ever think about John three sixteen? It's got a really weird part in it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, here's a weird part, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And later in this same passage, in verse 26, Jesus tells Martha, everyone who believes, believe, lives pardon, and believes in me shall never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Lazarus lived. Lazarus believed in Jesus. So Lazarus is just asleep. Jesus is beginning to put death in its place. We know how he'll do it ultimately, but here we see the beginnings of that. But that doesn't mean he laughs at it. In fact, Jesus takes death very, very seriously. It, it grieves him deeply, but he knows what it is ultimately. I think uh, you can imagine it like a rattlesnake with no venom. Picture that, a rattlesnake with no venom. In fact, you don't have to picture it because we have one in the box behind the stage. No, that was, that was a joke for the guest. I didn't forget about you guys. That was a special one for you. Not that, not that kind of church. <laughs> but picture, uh, picture a rattlesnake with no venom. Right? It's venomless, right? Does that mean you wanna hold it? I don't. Does that mean like it's a great pet for your kids? No. If I was like, there's one under your chair, you would run. It's, it's scary, it's intimidating, it's not fun. I mean, a bite from it would ruin your day. You, you would still have to go to the doctor. It would be painful, you'd probably get infected, but a bite from that snake is not the end of the story. You think about what Paul says. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And a victory is final. That's the end, right? A sting has poison. But we see, right, throughout the New Testament, death scores points, but it's not a victory. It's a puncture, not a poison. It wounds, but it doesn't win. So Jesus is gonna defeat death ultimately, and we know that. He's gonna do it here, in fact. But that doesn't make it easy to deal with. 
physically or emotionally. And what does Jesus do when he encounters death? Does he laugh? He weeps. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Adam Clark, in his biblical commentary, said that this is the least verse in the Bible, yet inferior to none. For him, you could hold this up to Romans 8, or all the Psalms, or Revelation, and you won't find a verse that's, that's more beautiful, that's more moving, that's more touching. Think about the context here. Here's Jesus. He's surrounded by grieving friends. He's walking to the grave of their dead brother, his dear friend Lazarus. Everyone around is crying and in anguish, and Jesus gets emotional. The text says he is deeply moved. He is greatly troubled. He's breaking down. Christ, the Messiah, God in flesh, is crying. But somehow, some folks can't get their heads around this. Then and now, we're, we try, we're like, what do we do? What do we do with a crying Jesus? But it's not hard to understand. Jesus loved these people, and they were devastated, and he empathizes with us, just like the Bible says he does. And that's to say nothing of his own grief. His friend is dead, and he wasn't there for it. It's not hard to understand at all. We, we act like God is, a, is an artificial intelligence or something. If you watch like, or, or read any sci-fi, this is like a, a classic sci-fi trope. There's always like a robot or an android, and the question is, like, can they have feelings? You know, so if you watch Star Trek The Next Generation, every other episode, it was like this is the plot point. Data, the android, can he feel things? Can he love? Can he be sad or angry? And we act like it's the same way with God. Like, is he, is he able to understand the complexity of human emotions? And of course he can, right? God has emotions, and Jesus has emotions too. God is a person. We sink in it. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And when Jesus is emotional, we can say, wow, this shows his humanity, and of course it does, but it also shows his divinity. He is alike God, and when you are emotional, you can be like Jesus. Sometimes weeping is the Christ-like thing to do. And here, God in flesh weeps. Interestingly, he doesn't wail. Apparently, that's not what this, this word implies. It's almost sadder than that. It is, a, it is a quiet shedding of tears. Maybe you've seen someone do that before. Picture a man with dignity and masculinity and unsurpassed love who is hurting, and he's not making a show of it. He's the man of sorrows. And the question isn't, why is Jesus weeping? I think the question is, how is Jesus not always weeping on this earth? This was the world that God made through Christ. And look what we've done. We, we were supposed to be in bliss in the garden, and we're at agony at funerals. And so he weeps. And some, tragically, I mean, this is adding to it all. It's, in the midst of this, there's hope. There's hope expressed here that someday, if only on the last day, God will make it all new again. In verse 24, we see Martha's this precious confession to Jesus that her brother will indeed rise again, if only at the end of the world. So Jesus weeps. How could he not? You would too. One commentary notes beautifully that John here holds up to all ages 
with such touching brevity the sublime spectacle of the Son of God in tears? What a seal of his perfect oneness with us in the most redeeming feature of our stricken humanity. See, on the cross, Jesus' body would be broken, but here we see Jesus' heart broken. And we see two different responses in the crowd. And it's always important what the crowd's doing, right? Because a lot of times it's telling us what we would be doing too. Some apparently moved themselves at this sight, say in verse 36, see how he loved him. And others in this weird blend of ignorance and skepticism say in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What's, what's clear here is that the crowd, along with Mary and Martha and everyone else, kind of have Jesus in his place, they think. He's a healer, he's a teacher, but he is not a rotting corpse resuscitator. That's why they're very concerned and disturbed when he commands them to open the tomb, to unseal the stone that is holding back the stink of Lazarus's body. And a lot of people have pointed out this weird limited belief of everyone around, right? They have this faith, but then at the same time, they don't have faith. Jesus, you could have kept him from dying. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But implicit in that is, but now he's dead and there's nothing you can do about it. And we do the same kind of stuff. You know, you imagine when we think about people in our lives that are hurting or sick, uh, we, we pray, God, take their cancer away. Do it supernaturally. And I've heard Christians tell stories of he showed up to the doctor and they said, your cancer's gone and we don't know how to explain it. And you know what we as Christians say? We go, we know how to explain it. Amen. But there's things that we think are outside of God's control at the same time. If somebody gets their arm ripped off working on farm machinery, we're not at Wednesday night Bible studies saying, God, just grow that arm back. You know? And it brings up this weird dichotomy. It just seems kind of outside the realm of possibility for us. And that's how they would have felt about Lazarus's rotten, dead body in a cave. This is not in the domain of things that Jesus can do. Nobody seems to be praying for a resurrection here. Not Mary, not Martha, not the disciples. It seems like the only person that is, is Jesus. And it seems like that's what he's been praying the whole time. When we thought he was doing nothing, right? I bet he was praying. In verse 41, notice the first thing he says aloud. It's not, hey God, I just got a crazy idea, buckle up. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Heard what? Probably the prayer he's had for the past several days. God, show your glory in this moment. And the story starts to build to a climax. Jesus keeps breaking down emotionally over and over again. He is either unable or unwilling to hold back tears, the grief, the psychological turmoil. And now this same Jesus, through tears, is telling people to move the stone. And Martha comes in pleading, intervening, probably through her own tears, not wanting Jesus to desecrate the tomb of her dead brother in front of a crowd. And Jesus almost scolds her. He's utterly insistent, probably seeming to some to be insane. And so they move the stone. And this would be the part where mothers would hide their children's eyes. And then he screams at the stench, at the death, at the darkness, words filled with more power than any since the words that created the world. Lazarus, come out. 
And then a dead man walks out of his tomb. And it would have been terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Nobody there was going, oh good, perfect. This turned out to be a great day after all. You know? Imagine you were at a funeral and uh, the casket's down here, the preacher's up here doing 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the eventual resurrection someday in the future, you know, when Jesus comes back. Closed casket, but then it starts to become an open casket from, from the inside. There's the suit jacket just pushing up the lid, screaming, fainting, running for the exits, right? All this stuff would be happening. And I imagine all the same stuff is happening there. What we do know is that Jesus actually had to tell people the obvious thing, please go take the grave clothes off of this man. And what a scene that would be. A lot of people have pointed out this juxtaposition, right? That the grave clothes would be perfumed and maybe filled with like potpourri, falling off this, this body, this man that doesn't need them anymore. He's alive. And while terrifying at first, over time, maybe slowly, that the running away would change to running towards. The tears of horror would turn to tears of joy, and the shrieks of fear would turn to cries of laughter. And everybody around would be saying what Jesus' disciples said on the boat when the deadly storm was raging and Jesus spoke and stopped it. Who then is this? But resurrecting people isn't cheap. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know how C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of this deep magic from the dawn of time. See, there's sin in Narnia, and that sin's punishment is guaranteed by an ancient law, that deep magic from the dawn of time. And we've got a law. We've got deep magic here as well. See, Lazarus actually got what he deserved. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death spread to all men because all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Lazarus was a sinner, and he died. Those are the rules. That's the law. That's the deep magic from the dawn of time. It goes all the way back to the garden. If you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And Lazarus had eaten of that tree in his own way, no doubt, just like all of us. If anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. We, like Lazarus and Adam and Eve before us, have eaten of the tree. We deserve what's coming. That's the deep magic. That's the law. But just like in Narnia, there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time, where a sinless sacrifice can make death work backwards. See, even though God told Adam and Eve what would happen with the aid of the tree, you shall surely die. He also hinted at something else. He hinted to the serpent that God himself would die. In his battle with death to break the curse of sin, Jesus would be mortally wounded. And Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus sets him on a collision course with the cross, where he would face the wrath of the Jewish leaders and the Romans and with God himself. As so many people have noted, to get Lazarus out of his tomb, it would mean Jesus would have to go into his own. He laid down his life for his friends. And so we come to the, the epilogue of the story. We get this secret insight and this private conversation among the Jewish leaders. And by the way, maybe you think, how do we know this? You know, how do we know these quotes from what happened? It's not like John would have been there in the background. It's probably because of what we read a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Eventually, ultimately, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
And maybe it's one of those priests that conveyed what happened next. But we have the Jewish leaders here, and they're afraid now of losing their position of authority, right? They've got control of the Jews. Because of that, they've got a special position with the Romans. And what they see happening here is that Jesus is, is a force to be reckoned with and that people will follow this man and they may lose their special place. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, in this moment of accidental prophecy, plotting Jesus' execution, states in verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. To which Jesus would say, amen. Jesus would die, but not just to save the place of the Jews with the Romans, but to save the place of all people with God. In dying, he would defeat death for us. But he didn't just defeat death. He rebuked it. See, death comes with an argument embedded in it. Death's argument is that God cannot be all-powerful and all-good. He cannot want the best for us and be able to do whatever he wants. Some people were questioning those various things in this story. Remember what the crowd said? Some people questioned his goodness. Why didn't he save his friend? And others questioned his power, thinking that he wouldn't be able to save his friend at this point. But in this story, and in Jesus' his own death and resurrection, he shows, Christ shows his power and authority is beyond question, and that his love and goodness is beyond comprehension. Have you ever thought about this narrative? It's a lot like life on earth in miniature, isn't it? Just read the news. It's all the stuff that we've got going on every day. Suffering, sadness, confusion, and death. And where is God in all this? And he can feel very distant at times. But really, he's not. We see in this account that the distance and delay of Christ here is to strengthen the faith of his followers and to increase their ultimate joy. His delay is to work all things together for their good. And not to get too metaphorical, but when Christ feels absent, he may be already on his way. But most of all, the suffering and the sadness of these people grieving in the face of death was all necessary for Christ himself to die. It was a miserably terrible situation for everybody involved, make no mistake. But ultimately, it was the best situation for everyone involved. Christ's actions were at least in part to send him to the cross. And when you have faith in a Christ that died for your sins, that means you don't have to die for your sins. See, Jesus did all this. Jesus died so that when your time comes, you can be like Lazarus. You can go to sleep. But it's not time to sleep yet. It's time to live and labor. And the place where we do that is the same world that brought God himself to tears. Someday, the same God who wept will be the God who wipes the tears from our eyes. The God who died will raise us up never to die again. He will be the one to wake us from our sleep. He will unwrap our grave clothes and instead clothe us in bright linen, fine and pure. And speaking of grave clothes, you know, Christ himself 
had grave clothes and wore those in the tomb. It's kind of a, a curiosity among a lot of people that after he was resurrected, those clothes were found neatly folded on his deathbed. And you might ask the question, why? A lot of people have pondered that. George Herbert, who was a Christian and a poet, answered that question in a really beautiful way and helps us to think of the resurrection when we think about death. Arise, arise, and with his burial linen, dry thine eyes. Christ left his grave clothes so that we might, when grief draws tears or blood, not lack a handkerchief. Christian, do you want to know how to respond to death? Weep. And when you are done, dry your eyes with the grave clothes of a victorious, risen Redeemer.